18 through 27. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection? And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no, chi- no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and he died. And when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to see you. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. I also want to welcome those that are watching right now on YouTube Live. Thank you for joining us, part of our church family. And so uh, we've been working our way through this teaching series, Unshakable Identity, and we now come to the next characteristic of our unshakable uh, identity, and that is we are a citizen longing for home. We are a citizen longing for home. This is based on uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 27. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. That was the text that was just read. Also, grab your sermon notes out. You can follow along. Take a look at the introduction to the sermon here. So we need to define what it means to be a citizen. What is a citizen? A citizen is a person who legally belongs to a country and has the rights and protection of that country. Would you agree with that? I think so. And what's interesting about uh, citizenship is that citizens adopt the culture and practices of the nation or kingdom to which they belong. Now, that's real critical to what I'm about to say here. Every person is born into the kingdom of this world in which Satan rules. That's 2 Corinthians 4.4. And must be born again to enter, to see and enter the kingdom of heaven. That's John chapter 3, verses 3 and 5. How are we born again? We are born again by grace, that's God's unmerited favor, by grace through faith 
in the person and work of Jesus Christ in uh, John 1.12. Let me illustrate this for you, what I believe really that kind of helps us to understand what happened to us when we were born again. During the long years of the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, a, a Russian Air Force pilot flew his fighter plane from a base in Russia to an American base, Air Force base in Japan and asked for asylum. He was flown to the U.S. where he was duly debriefed, given a new identity, and was set up as a bona fide resident of the U.S., In due time, he became an American citizen. That illustrates to some degree what happened to us when we were born again. When we were born again, our citizenship was transferred from the kingdom of this world over to the kingdom of heaven. Take a look at your sermon notes there. That verse, uh, Philippians 3.20 is a kind of a foundational verse to this study. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That word await is more than just patience. We're just patiently waiting, but it actually involves to wait. It means to, to do this, to await eagerly with great care and perseverance. It has this deep sense of longing and desire We long to see our Savior and to be with him for all eternity. That's what that word await means. So if you are truly a citizen of heaven, you will long for home and to be with God. Now this is the difference between authentic faith and a phony faith. See, a phony faith claims to believe in Christ only as as a fire insurance policy to escape hell. It has no real desire for Christ. An authentic faith longs for God and to be home with him. That's an authentic faith. Now think about this. If you truly have a genuine faith in Christ and you're walking with him, you're living for him, you're enjoying him, you're interacting with him as you speak love to him and truth, as you share your heart and he speaks love and truth to you and showers you with many blessings, how could you not want to be with him for all eternity? How could you not long for that? That's, just, that's a sign that you're, you're healthy That's a healthy Christian longing, oh, I long. And the more trouble I see that's happening around me in this world, even more so do I long. Come back quickly, Lord Jesus. And and so there's that deep longing within our hearts. Now, there's a statement that I was raised with that they would say this, that person is so heavenly-minded, he is no earthly good. Have you ever heard that statement before? Okay. I don't, I don't agree with it, okay? I don't believe it. In fact, I believe that the more heavenly-minded you are, the more earthly good you will be. And if you're no earthly good, it's because you're not very heavenly-minded. And uh, you're not living with a current perspective of eternity in your heart. 
as you navigate through this life. So here's, here's the, questions, uh, the question that we're going to work through. You can see this on your notes. How do we live as residents on earth but citizens in heaven? How do we do that? What does that look like? How do we live as residents on earth? That's the first part. The second part is how do we live as citizens in heaven? Let's take that first part. As citizens or as residents on earth, that's based on verses 13 through 17. I need to give you a little background for this text. The Pharisees, who were the conservatives, and the Herodians, who were the liberals. So we've got the red states and the, and the, and the blue states here represented. And both find Jesus to be a threat and are trying to trap him with their politically loaded question. In verse 13, they're asking the question, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And they're trying to trap him with that question. Now, there were all kinds of taxes on goods during this particular time, but this was a particular kind of head tax on the person. It was an annual tax of one denarius for the privilege of being a subject of Caesar. And so here's the trap. On the one hand, if he says, no, don't pay the tax, he's calling for an armed revolt and he will be crushed by the authorities. But if he says, yes, do pay the tax, then everybody who has heard him talk about the kingdom of God will know that he was just blowing smoke. And so they want a simple yes or no. Which political party are you in? And I just absolutely love Jesus. Jesus uh, in this and how, as he interacts with them, Jesus' Jesus's response is beautiful, balanced, and, and brilliant in every way. I mean, if it's been a while since you have acquainted yourself with the man Christ Jesus, you need to read through the gospel accounts. It's, it's quite spectacular when you see him interact with people and how he navigates life and just the wonderful things that he says. And so he says some just really great things right here. And what's interesting is that in his response, he refuses political pat answers because problems are much deeper and multidimensional. He also refuses political passivity. Why is that? Because the role of government is important. But he also refuses political priority because the role of government is not most important. And so here's your next, or your first fill in the blank. Um, It's uh, we are to honor the authority of government, but at the same time hold authority accountable. I think that's what he's teaching us here. Now let me read the text once again, verses 15 through 17. But knowing their hypocrisy... He said to them, why put me to the test? Show me the money. Okay, he didn't actually say that. He actually said, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And so Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And so, politicians are experts in skirting around hot topics, and it's extremely frustrating when you watch them and they're interviewed and they go, they didn't even answer the question. What is going on here? 
But these people are amazed at Jesus' response, verse 17. So honor authority, yes. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Hold authority accountable, yes. Give to God the things that are God's. And so Jesus is saying yes to paying taxes to Caesar, but no to giving Caesar ultimate authority. Now, why is that? Well, there's an implication here. Did you notice when he said this, whose likeness and inscription is on the coin? They said Caesar's. Well, the implication is whose likeness and inscription are on all of us. God, we are image bearers of God. Therefore, ultimate authority goes to God. That's the point. That's what he's saying here. And so this honorable accountability, which, by the way, I don't know if you've noticed lately, but there's a lot of dishonor, a, a lot of animosity and anger and, and antagonism back and forth in the political arena. It's pretty sickening, actually. I get tired of it from time to time and I have to turn it off. I don't watch it that much, just enough to kind of stay up with what's going on. And I'm very careful about the, the, the news outlet that I watch. They're so biased out there, it's unbelievable. And so in our culture, you just have to be really cautious. Don't watch too much of that. It can change your attitude. You need, need to keep a positive attitude throughout all of this. And, and as we will see here as we work through the notes. But, but that's just, there's such dishonor. And so this honorable accountability that we are to have towards government will look different in dictatorial societies from individualistic societies like ours. And so in dictatorial societies, we will look liberal, and in individualistic societies like ours, we will look conservative in our response to, to government. Now, so here's the next one. As residents on earth, we should not disobey civil government except when they want us to disobey God's word. And I gave you a whole bunch of verses there that you can study that will uh, help you understand that more clearly. But this is what I want you to do. Turn to the person next to you and ask them uh, and see if they can answer this question. What are the three God-ordained entities of authority currently on this planet Earth? There are three God-ordained authorities. What are they? Real quick, see if the people around you know it. You need to know this. Okay, I already gave you one. One was government. So there's two more. The, the family and the church. How many were kind of right there, close, wherever? Okay. Yeah, three entities of authority. Now, if you look at the, uh, the family, what's the, what's the family doing currently? Not so well here in America. It's not doing well. That's why we're seeing all the, uh, the unraveling of our culture. How about the church? The church, yeah, it's, it's struggling, but there are some really good solid churches out there that exercise good, healthy authority. And yet, what we live in a day and time of, of anonymity and individualistic attitudes. And so you go to a church, you don't like what this pastor said to you, you're gonna quit and go to the church down the street with no accountability whatsoever. That's the culture we live in. We tend to thumb our nose at, at the family and the church and even the government. But the government is God's gift given after the fall to put <clears throat> a halt on sin. 
Now imagine our city if 911 didn't answer. No police officers, no firefighters, only mobs, and they do what they please with no one to stop them. Violent mobs would be terribly frightening. Anarchy is worse than any government. And we got a taste of that just this last week, did we not? I mean, when a mob rushes in and takes over a police precinct in Minneapolis, that's insane. That makes no sense. Destroying people's livelihood and businesses that they poured their blood, sweat, and tears in, that's what mobs are about. And even the murder that came as a result of these mobs. And so that's absolutely crazy. And so that's what we always need to keep in mind. So government is God's gift given after the fall to put a halt to sin. And, And let me talk a little bit about this coronavirus controversy for churches to meet or not to meet. I believe that this fits in the category of non-essential doctrine, so we can debate it, but we shouldn't divide over it. But there's, there's controversy in our culture. I don't know if you know that, but uh, there was a pastor in the community that called churches like ours that didn't meet for a season liberal socialist. So that's, uh, that's unkind. I mean, what do you say? That's unnecessary. I thought we were on the same team. And so I've even seen it within our own church, this controversy of should we meet or should we not meet. There are those that say it's loving not to meet so that we can mitigate this terrible disease. And so we did that for a season. But then there are also those that said it's loving to meet. And there are churches that continue to meet throughout this time. I happen to believe that because this is in a non-essential, each church needs to do what is in the best interest of their church family in glorifying God. And that's exactly what we have tried to do here. Now, I'm not the one that makes the decisions. It's actually, we believe that the church is to be led by Jesus Christ through a plurality of leaders known as elders and deacons. And so it was our elders that made that decision as we have prayerfully painfully navigated through all of this. And, and so we want to do all that protects our people and the community and at the same time honor God. And so um, there shouldn't be any name calling, okay, or demeaning of, of other churches. Absolutely, not any whatsoever. I mean, there should be any of that. This is in a non-essential area. The, the government was not asking us to break God's word or his law. They were just asking us to take a break to mitigate uh, this crisis that, that's at hand. And, um, and, and I know that I, there's a lot of different arguments both ways. We did it for a season and, and now we're back together, praise God. But, but there are, there's about half of our congregation hasn't returned yet, and we're okay with that, like those that are watching right now on YouTube Live, many more that we'll be watching later on today and throughout this week. And we're okay with that. We love them. We want them to join us either here or on YouTube Live or on Vimeo is where we also put out our, our sermons. And so no criticism here. You need to do, you need to be, You need to be smart, safe, and selfless as we navigate this together. 
and honor the decisions of each other. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who, who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, what, what should we be doing during this time? By doing good. You should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And here he wraps it up. I I love verse 17. He says, honor everyone. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. So we need to love one another within our, within our fellowship and those that are believers, even in the community. Fear God. He has ultimate authority. And honor the emperor is what he says here. Now, this emperor was killing Christians, and yet the writer here, Peter, says you need to honor him. Is, is that a little insane to you? But I believe that's Christianity. Is that while we're being murdered, you would honor those that are in authority? because they're God-ordained and they're part of the structure that God has established. And so, here's the next one. As residents on earth, we are to love our neighbor by praying for our government and voting for politicians and laws that promote the flourishing of our society, which would be biblical values. Let Let me just make this very clear. Wherever a culture or a society embraces biblical values, there's flourishing. You want flourishing in our society? Biblical values. God's not out to get us. He loves us. He wants the very best for us. That's why we have the biblical values. That's why we have the standards. That's why we have his word. And uh, praying for our government, I pray for our government every morning. And I would encourage you and I would invite you to start praying for our government. I pray for our city, state, and national political leaders. I pray for our president. I also pray for our city, state, and national spiritual leaders. I pray for the churches in the community right here. And this is what I pray. I pray for a revival because we desperately need a revival, renewal, or an awakening, whatever you want to call it. And, and so I, pl- I pray that uh, sleepy Christians would wake up, nominal Christians would get saved, and the church would be beautified so that people that are hard to reach would be attracted to Christ through his bride, through his church. And so you need to be praying and also be voting. Vote biblical values. And by the way, there are are those in office that promote biblical values more so than others, okay? Just be aware of that. I'm always, I always think, and I'll watch Christians sometimes vote for a, you know, a politician. I'm thinking, they don't embrace biblical values. What are you doing? This person, even if you don't like him, he at least is standing up for biblical values. And... um, And so let me ask you some questions here. Is environmental stewardship important? Yes. Is not killing babies in the mother's womb important? Yes, exclamation mark. Is racial justice important? Yes, absolutely. Is homeland security important? Yes. Is the flourishing of our economy important? 
Yes, but here's what's most important. Here's what's most important. The family. As the family goes, so goes society. And that's why you're seeing, as I've said, the unraveling of our culture. It's because the family is broken in our culture. And so same-sex marriage, transgenderism, abortion, divorce, sexual promiscuity, pornography, poverty, racial injustice, alcohol and drugs, all undermine the God-ordained institution of family, which is the foundation of society. If you question whether or not it's truly the foundation of society, go all the way back to Genesis, the book of origins. Genesis 1 and 2 makes it very clear. Here's, Here's that structure of authority, the family. And then out of that came certainly the government as more and more family members got together and then within that also the church. And so this is what I'm saying. Don't be a single issue voter. There's a lot of issues out there, but you need to vote uh, politically or vote for politicians that uh, uphold godly values in God's word. If you're a believer in Christ, that just goes without saying. I shouldn't even have to say that. It would just be natural for us. And so uh, let me give you a story here. In June a year ago, a valedictorian was giving a speech at a high school graduation. And part of the speech, and part of the speech he quoted someone and then attributed that quote to a very well-known politician. The crowd started applauding and cheering in solidarity with the quote and the person who said it. And then the valedictorian said, I was just kidding. That quote was actually from another politician that he named who was on the other side of the political spectrum. And in that moment, the crowd that was minutes ago cheering and applauding started booing. An author who was writing about tribalism and this particular story said this. In our tribalistic society, it, it, it's become the identity of the messenger and not the content of the message that matters most. Do you hear that? That's our culture. And so avoid partisan politics, stand up for the truth, but do it with gentleness and respect. We need prophets, not partisans. And so do not become enemies of the very people we seek to win to Christ, our potential brothers and sisters in the Lord. They are not the enemy, but enslaved by the enemy and don't even know it. And so with gentleness and respect, stand up for the truth with gentleness and respect. And um, here's the, the, the last one of this uh, section. As residents on earth, our aim must be more than a better society, but to completely transform it by faithfully and contagiously using all our power, success, comfort, and recognition for the proclamation and demonstration of the gospel. Now, the reason why I said that is because it's very biblical, and um, spiritual results can only be achieved through spiritual means. You can't get spiritual results from political means. Listen to what John MacArthur said in an article uh, on the gospel and politics in Pulpit Magazine. He said, America's moral decline is a spiritual problem, not a political one, and its solution is the gospel, not partisan politics. 
The truth is that no human government can ultimately do anything either to advance or to thwart God's kingdom. And the worst, most tyrannical worldly government in the end cannot halt the power of the Holy Spirit or the spread of God's word. Praise God for that. That's a fact. Above all, the believer's political involvement should never displace the priority of preaching and teaching the gospel. The greatest temporal good we can accomplish through political involvement cannot compare to what the Lord can accomplish through us in the eternal work of his kingdom. I think the best example of this is found in the book of Acts. Read through the book of Acts, that first century church. They were certainly lived under a much more oppressive government than we in America have ever lived under. And yet they turned the Roman world upside down, not through political activism, but through the proclamation and the demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just read the book of Acts. It, it shows us that. And so there's a, there's a sociologist, his name is Rodney Starks, and he... Uh, explored this. He, he wanted to know why, why the early church had such a great impact uh, on the Roman world, literally turning that world upside down. And he came up with certain things that the, the early church did, and I'm just going to give you just a summary of those things. I'll just give you three of those things, and what you'll see is that they are the product of the gospel. So we need to proclaim the gospel, we need to live the gospel, and this is what he said. Racial inclusivity that was true about the early church, racial inclusivity, sexual purity, and financial generosity is, is how they made an impact in the culture. And those are all the product of the gospel. So as residents on earth, our relationship to government should be honorable accountability, obey except when they uh, want us to disobey God, pray and vote for godly values, seek to transform society through the proclamation and demonstration of the gospel, which we do week in and week out right here. And so, to be that earthly good, we need to be more heavenly minded. So how, how do we live as residents on earth? We covered that. Now how do we live as citizens in heaven? That's the next part. And so, that's covered in verses 18 through 27. <clears throat> Another story here. And so let me give you a little background. So we've had the Pharisees and the Herodians come and try to trap Jesus. Now guess who we've got? We've, we've got the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees were the uh, aristocratic and highly educated priestly families of Israel. They accepted the moral teachings of the scripture, but they sneered at any elements of the supernatural. In fact, it tells us in verse 18 of our text, they say there is no resurrection. So they didn't believe in a heaven, life after death. And, um, and so the Sadducees ask a question about a practice during this ancient time we know nothing about. So it is the Old Testament law of leveret marriage. And so leveret marriage is where the surviving brother of a childless deceased man was obligated to marry his sister-in-law in order to provide for her needs and to preserve the deceased brother's family line. You can read more about that if you want in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and Genesis 38. But think about the story, this hypothetical story that they bring to uh, Jesus. So a gal marries a guy, this guy dies, so his brother marries her, and then he dies, and then a third one marries her, and he dies, and it goes all the way up to how many times? 
Seven times. So the first thing that's coming to mind for me is like 48 hours dateline murder mystery, okay? I'm thinking, we're going to call this the Black Widow. I think she's knocking them all off, even though it's hypothetical. But uh, I think she's killing every one of those guys. But, uh, but, it's, but they don't actually go there in the story. Okay, so sorry about that. But the Sadducees are presenting a hypothetical situation in an effort to make the afterlife look absurd and Jesus look stupid. And so here's the trap. If Jesus laughs with them, then he'll be rejected by the conservatives, the Pharisees. And if he comes up with some convoluted response, he'll be laughed at by the Sadducees and just validate their beliefs. Either way, he'll be discredited. So verse 24, Jesus said to them, once again, once again, he's, he's brilliant, he's balanced, he's beautiful in, in his response. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? Bam. I mean, he's all over them. He just squares up with them. Now, here's your next fill in the blank. We know that heaven is real, not because we read a book about someone who died and went to heaven, but because Jesus said it was, and Scripture teaches it, and God's power can do it. You see that, all three of those in this text. So first of all, Jesus said... Jesus said it was in this passage that heaven is real. This is exactly what he's saying here. He's reinforcing, no, no, there is an afterlife. You guys don't know scripture or the power of God. So Jesus is validating it, and then he points out to scripture, he takes him to scripture. So it's not based on a book that you read about life after death by somebody that had an experience like that. You go back to scripture. The scripture is our authority. It's the basis of what we believe. And, and so he takes them to, to Scripture, verses 26 to 27, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead but of the living. What's the implication here? All three of those guys are living. They're still alive, not on earth, but with me in heaven. That's what he's saying. It's quite profound, and he ends by saying, you are quite wrong. And so he shows how they don't understand the scriptures. First, Jesus doesn't go to sections of scripture that they reject. They rejected, the Sadducees rejected the prophets, but they accepted the first five books of the Bible. So where does Jesus take him? To the second of the five books in the Bible, Exodus chapter three, verse six, where God reveals himself to Moses and he says, I am that I am. It's where we get the, his personal name, God, which means Yahweh, Jehovah, uh, I am that I am. And then he says this, why didn't he say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? But he said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Why did he do it that way? Because he's showing us that he is a personal God. He has, each one of these have a personal relationship with me. And we can have that too. And, and, and he is the God of the living. Um, 
I've had the privilege of being on the bedside of many people who have taken their last breath on this planet Earth. And that might sound a little odd. The privilege? Yeah. Especially if they were Christians. And uh, I didn't feel so privileged if they were not a Christian. I felt very sad and sorrowful over that. But if they were Christians, because I, was, I, was, I, could, I couldn't contain myself at, at times because it was almost like I knew that when they took their last breath on earth, they took their first breath in heaven. Their first breath in heaven. They are, they are with Jesus face to face. See, that's the hope that we have. And you are never more alive than two seconds after you die. Second Corinthians 5.8, it says, to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, Philippians 1.21, uh, Paul says here, he says, to live is Christ, to die is what? It's gain. So when I hear of a of a beloved brother or sister that's passed away, I, I immediately say, uh, gain, gain for whoever it is that just passed away, gain for this person, oh my goodness. It's amazing, it, it's absolutely amazing. And, um, and then he also says, so Jesus said it, the scriptures teach it, God's power can do it, verse 24, you don't know the power of God. Verse 25, for when they rise from the dead. He didn't say if they rise from the dead, but when they rise from the dead. Now, we know God's power throughout Scripture. Genesis 1 and 2, we have his creation power. Now, when you look out on this planet, and not just this planet, but the the sky, the stars, the moon, all the planets, that God spoke all of that into existence. He made everything out of nothing. I know that just blows the circuits in your brain because we are finite beings. We don't understand an eternal, infinite God. But that's his power. That's the power of God. Ephesians 1, 19 through 23, he, there is revealed his resurrection and ruling power. And of course, in Luke 1, 37, it says nothing is impossible to God. So as citizens in heaven, we know that heaven is real because Jesus said it, scriptures teach it, and God's power can do it. Here's the next one. We know that in heaven we will be transformed beyond our wildest dreams, physically, relationally, and vocationally. I'm gonna kind of expound on each of those very quickly here. Verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, let me correct something here. I've, I've often heard, and I've actually heard this from Christians before, and I'm always thinking, no, that's not true. But they would say, oh, my loved one that just passed on, God needed another angel, and now they're an angel. No, they're not. Sorry. They're not an angel. They're maybe like the angels, but they're not an angel. And I, I hear that all the time. It's just, it's, it's not biblical, okay? That's all I'm saying. And uh, don't mean to get on to you, but uh, that's, that's the truth. And so, uh, so when my wife, Nancy, found out that we won't be married in heaven, she said, praise God. And I'm not really sure how to take that. That's what she said, okay. And so physically, how will our 
bodies be transformed physically. As an acorn is to a gigantic oak tree, is my body now compared to my resurrected body? Verse 24, you don't know the power of God is what he's saying here. Do you understand the power of God? The magnitude of the power of God will transform you into something beyond your wildest dreams. Praise God. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. If we let him, he can make the feeblest and filthiest of us into dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. He will make us bright stainless mirrors which reflect back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. This is what we are in for, nothing less. So he'll transform us physically but also relationally. The most euphoric moment in the best marriage in the history of the world is nothing compared to the love, closeness, and enjoyment I and you will will have an experience with Christ overflowing to others for all eternity. When Jesus says they neither marry nor are given in marriage, He can't mean the future state will have less intense love than we have now. That's not what he means. The closest relationship you can have with anyone in this life is like a black cat firecracker in comparison to an atomic bomb of love we will have in heaven with God and others. Okay, that's quite an interesting analogy, Pastor Ray. But but I think you get the point Any love we have on this planet is nothing compared to what we will experience for all eternity with him and others. And so our love lives in heaven won't be less than marriage, but go vastly beyond marriage. And then he's going to transform us uh, also vocationally. My work will be engaging. My play will be exciting. There will be art and entertainment and sports. Yes, sports in heaven. My, My worship of God will be exhilarating. Verse 25 like the angels in heaven. We will be like the angels in heaven. By the way, there will be no golf in heaven, okay? Just, just to let you guys know. No golf in heaven. Why, how could there be golf? Heaven uh, is a perfect place. And, and so there will be no cussing, cheating, or temper tantrums. That sounds like my golf game. And I don't even ever play golf, but once, once every 20 years, okay? And that's usually how I, what I experience. But okay, so vocationally, he'll transform us. So as citizens of heaven, citizens in heaven, we know that heaven is real because Jesus said it, scriptures teach it, God's power can do it. We know that in heaven, we will be totally transformed physically, relationally, vocationally. Here's the last one right here. This is important to get. We will be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So while we're here on this earth, As citizens in heaven, we will be sorrowful yet always rejoicing in our hope for heaven as we live our lives for the one who gave his life for us. And uh, and so let me explain a little bit of this sorrowful yet rejoicing. It's actually based on 2 Corinthians 6.10. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Yeah, I think that as Christians, we should be the saddest people on this planet Earth when we look at all the sin and suffering around us. 
And at the same time, we ought to be the most joy-filled people on this planet because of the hope that we have in the gospel. Does that make sense? So this is not sequential, by the way. The Bible doesn't teach this as being sequential. You're going to be sad, and then eventually you'll be rejoicing, and then you'll go back into sadness, and then you'll rejoice. He does, that's not what it's saying. This is simultaneously, you will be sorrowful and yet rejoicing, always rejoicing. Isn't that what it tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4.13? We grieve, but we do not grieve like the world because what? We have hope. We have hope. So we grieve. We're in touch with reality. We see the ugliness of sin and suffering all around us. And yet, and yet we have hope. We know that no sin or suffering is a match for God's redeeming and restoring grace. So verse 27, he says, he ends this by saying, you are quite wrong. Now what hangs in the balance if we get this wrong? Well, how we live our life now and where we will spend eternity. Now human beings are unavoidably hope-based creatures. How you live in the present is inevitably shaped by what you believe about your future. Let me give you a quick illustration here, a little analogy. Two guys working in a sweat factory doing mundane, tedious jobs for a year. It's, just, it's, a, it's a horrible job. It's a hard job. It's a difficult job. And two of them are working side by side. One of them is promised $12,000 at the end of the year. The other is promised $12 million at the end of the year. Let me ask you a question. Which one will be able to endure the hardship with a confident, joyful expectation? <laughs> it's obvious. The one that's going to get the $12 million a year because he knows he won't ever have to work again. I mean, he will be set. But the guy making the $12,000 a year, he's probably not going to finish. He's probably going to give up and look for another job. He's going to probably complain. Well, the other guy's just whistling while he works. Woohoo! Can't wait. He's already spending that money. He's thinking how he's going to spend it. See, here's, here's the point. People who don't have a proper understanding of Christian hope will find themselves regularly battling inordinate anxiety, anger, and depression. Setting aside any physiological contributions. I know that we have chemistry issues and you need to take the appropriate medications, but all the medications in the world can't give you the hope that only the gospel can give you. And so imagine just for a moment, let's just take a moment, imagine what it will be like to see him face to face. It tells us that in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Think about that. You, you probably should think about that quite regularly. Often during my prayer time early in the morning, I, I daydream about what it will be to see my Savior face to face. Although I know he's there in spirit with me right then. He sees me. He hears me. I interact with him. I know him. And yet one of these days... I will see him face to face, the one who would rather die than to live all eternity without, without me, without you. That's why I love the quote by Teresa of Avila, the first moment in the arms of Jesus is going to make a thousand years of misery on earth look like one night in a bad hotel. That's true, that's true. 
So the God of creation came to this earth, lived a perfect life, was rejected, betrayed, tortured, and crucified, and on the third day rose from the grave conquering sin, death, and evil. Jesus Christ went to hell for you so that you could have heaven with him for all eternity. If you had an inkling of what that means, just kind of an inkling of what that means, you would fall on your face in worship of God with all of your heart and you would live your life fully devoted to him, filled with hope. So the, most, the more heavenly-minded you are, the more earthly good you will be. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Our glorious Father, as it is written in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. We see it all around us in our culture, in our society, and even within our own lives. Though outwardly we are wasting away, but inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Our light and momentary trials are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, for the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. May we be more and more heavenly-minded so that we will be more and more earthly good as we proclaim and demonstrate the gospel of our Savior for our joy and your glory in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said... Amen. Love you guys. God bless you.